I wish I could tell you where this script was going, Heather. The fact is, I don't know. You know, I, I dream a, a scene at night, I write it down in the morning. Beyond that, uh, your guess is as good as mine where it's going. Well, at least tell me what it's about so far. It's about this entity, whatever you want to call it. It's, it's old, it's very old. It's existed in different forms at different times. About the only thing about it that stays the same is what it lives for, really. What is that? Oh, the murder of innocence. Does this thing have any weaknesses? Oh, well, it can be captured sometimes. Captured? How? By storytellers, of all things. I mean, every so often they imagine a story good enough to sort of catch its essence, and then, for a while, it's held prisoner in the story. Like the genie in the bottle. Exactly. But the problem comes when the story dies. However it happens, when the story dies, the evil is set free. You're saying Freddy is this ancient thing. Right. Current version. And for uh, ten years, he's been held captive pretty much as Freddy in the Nightmare on Elm Street series. But now that the films have ended, the genie's out of the bottle. Freddy Krueger was dead. New Line Cinema and Robert England himself assured us that after the sixth Nightmare movie in 1991, Freddy Krueger would not be resurrected once again. For a while, their promises seemed to hold true. After their nearly a movie a year pace, a full year went by with no new Nightmare on Elm Street. The second year after Freddy's death passed with no new movie, but rumors started to spread. Though the break was longer than between any previous two movies in the series, a new nightmare would be coming out. It turns out Freddy wasn't dead after all. But the news surrounding the seventh installment of the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise sounded like it would be something very different from what the series had become. For one, Wes Craven was back to write and direct in the universe he had such a personal attachment to. But this wouldn't actually be in the same universe he started back in 1984. Instead, Craven felt the only way to legitimately bring back Freddy one more time for one more rampage was to bring him into the real world. So, reportedly deriving much of the script from his own dreams he was having at the time, Wes Craven pulled Freddy out of the dreamscape of movies and placed him into the dream world of Hollywood, California. In a super meta take on the nature of film, storytelling, and even the culture of the movie industry, faces familiar to the franchise including Heather Langenkamp, Robert England, and even Wes Craven himself would return to play versions of themselves in a movie that drew inspiration from real-life events, and in some ways would predict real-life events and scenarios. It's a movie that pays tribute to the original spirit of Freddy Krueger, while giving longtime fans more than a few nostalgic feelings. But it's also a movie that feels like a fresh take on a franchise that had earned its eternal rest. Was it worth it to bring Freddy back from the dead one more time? Find out tonight as we discuss Wes Craven's new nightmare here in The Last Theater. Welcome once again to The Last Theater. My name is Chris. And my name is Joey. And welcome to part 7 of our Nightmare on Elm Street franchise retrospective where you can find every episode of this and all of our other retrospectives and individual movie episodes on cnjradio.com, the home of the last theater and the CNJ Radio Network of Podcasts. 
Joey, what do you think about Wes Craven's new night? You're smiling at me right well, now. First of all, ain't that a bitch? I mean, we had to, you had to think about it for like a split second. Yeah. This is part seven, because yeah. they're not going to tell you. They yeah. haven't been telling you for a while now. Well, yeah. I, you know, watching this movie and having a decent brain of where we were at culturally and socially and all this stuff in the early to mid-90s. Yeah. The thing that I really take from this, and this may be coming from a real long path that you may not have expected, but... I see a lot of post-Los Angeles riots, Hollywood, in this. Yeah. I think the earthquakes are kind of maybe even a possible reflection of that. But I know that that was, like, you know, huge. I mean, you can have, you know, and all due respect to anything I might mention here, I'm not trying to belittle anything. Sure. Uh, you know, you can have wars like we have and had right at the beginning of the 90s and stuff like that. But it's not, it's not hidden home. Unless you're directly involved, you have family members there, things like that. Those are the way yeah, to involve yeah, it directly. Of course, the economy is always going to be a thing. But, man, people that lived in Los Angeles at the time, like, that was, I mean, that's crazy. You know, that's, yeah. you know, it wasn't, was it nationwide? We all felt it, but I can't imagine living there. Yeah. The sense of reality had to really go in to Hollywood just instantly. Sure. And that's when you get movies like, you know, Boys in the Hood happened around that time, yeah, yeah. right before it, but like then it started we have more movies like that. Right. So, I think that's possibly an influence as uh, for Wes Craven uh, approaching this because it's like, you know, shit's real now. Yeah. So let's make it as real as possible. Yeah. I just have that's my theory on why he went the way he did with it. Yeah, yeah, something like that with all of these people, these actors and directors and producers and whatnot that you see in the movie, they all live in this area of California, so you can't help but be affected by it, even if you don't necessarily, like, directly put that into your movie. Like, I don't yeah. think Wes Craven did necessarily, but he said he was having nightmares at the time, and that could have been influenced by yeah. everything that was going on around him. And like you said, you look at the earthquakes in this movie, the, the world is falling down around him. And I think that could very well just be kind of this, the tension that people felt in that area specifically at the time could have kind of permeated into their dreams and into the movie and just, yeah, yeah. I, I think you got something there. Yeah, for yeah. Sure. I mean, it's just, it, th that's what it feels like when I watch this movie. Yeah. And I actually remember having a memory of watching this. Mm -hmm. I, I didn't go to the theater to see it. But I did see it like right when it came out on video. Yeah, so that's... I think I did. I think I was the same. Yeah, yeah. No theater for you either. I don't okay. think so. Is yeah, because uh, yeah, that was still. I mean, my parents would have taken me to see it, and I'm sure I could have gotten it anyway. Oh yeah, but yeah, uh, I was still kind of young. Yeah. Uh, to go there on my own or with friends or anything. So yeah, it's weird. The first run uh, movie I saw for either of these big franchises was Freddy vs. Jason. Like, yeah. that's the first time I saw him in the theater. It's the first one I remember seeing. Right, yeah. premiered, yeah. So, all right, we'll get to that on the next episode. <laughs> but, yeah, back into the new nightmare. Uh, yeah, even, uh, Robert Shea. Yeah. Uh, plays himself. Right. I'm sure a lot of people in that office are just playing themselves, I bet, for budget reasons. Yeah. You know? the, <laughs> so. so, the, the basic premise of the movie, it's in the real world. Wes Craven is back. It very, very much mirrors reality. Wes Craven is back to write and direct a new Nightmare on Elm Street movie. He wants Heather Langenkamp to be in it. Heather's having bad times in her personal life. She has a son. She has a stalker, maybe. At one point, like you were mentioning, Heather does go into New Line Cinema. And you see Robert Shea, the woman who took Heather from the receptionist to Robert Shea. She, uh, Sarah, I believe her name yeah. was. She was a real producer. I think she was a producer. Uh, mm -hmm. at New Line. So some of those people were in there. There were a few, like, I listened to the commentary mm -hmm. on it. Uh, Wes Craven is one of the best 
commentary guys. Oh, yeah? I, I love his commentaries. I always like when he talks in interviews yeah, anyway. Because so he's just like, real laid back. Yeah. And I like John Carpenter, too. But, like, if you compare the two, John Carpenter is kind of jokey. And he kind of jokes about stuff and yeah. doesn't really talk about the movie. Yeah, yeah. But Wes Craven is not so jokey, but he's lighthearted. And he... He has a little laugh at himself sometimes, but he talks about the movie and he talks about the background behind it. Yeah. But he was kind of pointing out like, okay, yeah, that was, that was Sarah. Like she works at New Line and she was, she bought a new suit for the, for the role and she was very nervous about being on there, but she looks beautiful and like Robert Shea and a lot of the actors from previous uh, Nightmare movies are in it either in bit parts or in featured roles. And yeah, is they're all playing versions of themselves. Kind of the way Wes Craven put it is the way he wants to see them, maybe. Like, uh, especially like Robert England, he was kind of having a joke with him, like being in this gigantic mansion and being a painter and things yeah. like that, yeah. living this big Hollywood lifestyle. Yeah. A true artist. <laughs> yeah, in England, Robert England was like, I don't live like that. Like, <laughs> I have a small house with my wife. And, and like, that's that's not me, but it's it was fun to play. Sure. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, it's... It's a really meta movie in that when you dig into how it was made and why it was made and the background around that, it is a very, very close reflection of the lives of specifically Heather Langenkamp and Wes Craven. Okay. So, yeah, let's let's get into that. So, what was going on with Heather? Uh, so, Heather hadn't she hadn't done a ton of stuff yeah. she'd done some tv i remember watching just the 10 of us yeah. i will admit that i watched that show <laughs> because i was a growing pains fan as a yeah. kid and that was the spinoff of it was it okay yeah i knew of it i never watched it sure yeah so i never really made the correlation that she was one of the daughters because it's how can you keep up there's yeah, there's, there's you know of them. yeah yeah okay. or, or eight of them eight of them plus yeah the yeah. yeah so it, it i didn't put two and two together sure. until later but yeah so I at least had that with her, so that's that's all I really you knew. Know. So yeah, I understand she just basically did TV. I didn't, I can't recall seeing her in other films. I think she had a few roles, uh, but yeah, like I said, not a whole lot. I don't know if she was distancing herself from horror or not, but she wasn't really doing that at the time anymore. Uh, but yeah, she was in Just the Ten of Us, which was definitely like the biggest, thing, longest running thing she did between her roles in the first and third Nightmares and this one. And... At a certain point, just the ten of us went off the air, it got cancelled, and there was a very over-eager, overzealous fan that didn't like that. And Heather and other members of the crew got lots of phone calls and things like that, and yeah. he, he was blaming them. The people on, like, the actors and actresses and the, the crew, he was blaming them for the cancellation of the show, and I think Heather was kind of the main focus of his ire. So wow. that happened before Wes ever came to her to say, hey, can you be in this? Yeah. Uh, what happened was Robert Shea and Wes Craven, they put differences behind them. They just were like, they didn't really go into it because I, like I've said in all of these, I've been reading the Fangorias and all Wes said about the, the stuff that we talked about with number three, where he wasn't given credit for mm. his writing role. Yeah. It was all put behind him, water under the bridge. Sure. And he, he did get to have that dig in the dialogue, though, yeah. like at the very beginning with the limo driver saying, yeah. well, the first one's the best. Yeah. Like they just immediately like kind of cancel yeah. out every other entry. Yeah. R within the first, what, 10 minutes of the movie. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> 
he has he has some like it seemed like some in jokes against uh, Robert Shea as well in the scene that Robert was actually in. Right. Because he was kind of laughing about it in the commentary, but I didn't really get why he was necessarily laughing about it. Mm. So Robert Shea actually approached Wes be like, hey, do you like, because he's a money guy. He, yeah. he needs yeah. another new Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah, you'd be stupid not to ask, yeah. you know, if that's your bottom line. I totally get that, you know. And Wes has said that he always wanted to return to Freddy Krueger because it was such yeah. a personal thing. It's named after one of his childhood bullies. Yeah. It came from his own dreams and things that he had back in the 70s. Yeah. So he signed on the dotted line to write and direct a new movie, but he didn't have an idea for what that movie would be. Well, I bet he had creative control in his contract yeah. Was, yeah. as far as like that being said. you know. So, so the way he says it is he was a little... Uh, not scared necessarily, but a little nervous about not having an idea. And he didn't know how to bring back Freddy another time without just negating everything that came before it. If I could bring up another big word that I never get to say, trepidatious. Yeah, yeah there you go. Uh, you also, go. that does make a lot of sense, If that's, since you're telling me that this is the truth. Yeah. Uh, obviously, that had a lot of influence you know, in the script itself. Yeah. Like, a lot of his non-ideas yeah. just wound up on the screen because he's writing it as he goes. And Yeah, <laughs> and that actually happened as he tells it, as he told it in these Fangorias, that happened in real life as well. The other actors say the same thing. Wow. So one day, he didn't have an idea for the movie he wanted to make. The one thing he did know is that he wanted Heather Langenkamp to be in it. So he met with Heather to discuss just hey do you want to be in this movie sure and it was then that she told him about her problems with the stalker from just the ten of us That's and that started the the clockwork brain going in his, in his head <laughs> and he he came up with the idea can you imagine having that like i'm sure like it was like, oh, that's great what no, that's not great yeah, like yeah, I could just yeah. see like a creative guy like being like, oh, I can use that yeah. Oh, is that okay? Yeah. <laughs> that it seems like that's kind of how it was. <laughs> so he came up with the idea of having the movie set in the real world, finger quotes, real world, how yeah. real is Hollywood anyway? Sure, yeah. <laughs> and and he wanted to, I wouldn't say capitalize, but he wanted to incorporate Heather's issues with her stalker into the movie. Of course, sure. he went to her and he actually had a lot more things in the movie that were too personal for Heather and she yeah. kind of said no to some stuff. But maybe that's possible. That's what he rolled into Scream later on. Maybe, yeah. It could be. I've never heard that, but it very well could be. He just, I mean, he seems like the kind of dude that wouldn't, like, say that. Like, hey, this happened to Heather, you know, if she didn't want people to know. It does seem like that, though. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And so he came up with the basic plot of the stalker against stalking Heather. And that kind of, everything else just kind of came with that. And so basically, what I was saying before about him writing the script as they went along... Wes Craven apparently started having nightmares around this time as well, or maybe he'd had them for a while. But during shooting, he was having nightmares, perhaps. The tension in California at the time was leading to those. But he actually did write pages as they were shooting. The actors didn't know how the movie was going to end necessarily, or what they were going to do the next day, because Wes Craven would be writing pages like at night and then bringing them in the next day. Wow. And that's exactly what he's doing in the movie. And in almost any other production ever, that would be seen as a disaster. Yeah. Like, 
Well, it, it happened in some of the previous nightmares. Oh, sh- yeah. I'm, I'm sure that's that's yeah. what that's why some of those aren't near perfect yeah. movies. I've heard about stories like this on movie sets, yeah. like movies that have like way more money put into it than something like this. Right. Which, and not that this movie looks bad or anything, yeah. but it doesn't have a huge budget. Something like Alien Three, it's infamous for that. Right, like David Fincher, like so out on that production because yeah. but he's like i couldn't say anything i was a rookie yeah. like as a film director right and he goes literally because this is the first and last time i'll ever work on a film where they're still working on the script as we shoot it it's just not the way to make a movie under normal circumstances yeah so it's the only, one of the only examples i know offhand so yeah for but sure. for, like i said for the way this movie the plot is it almost makes sense it, it almost would drive extra inspiration and performance out of even just the actors themselves right. because of the unpredictability of it yeah why not yeah absolutely <laughs> and i i feel th- that's how he said it in fangoria yeah. i feel like he knew the basic major plot points of where he wanted it to end up but because the main mythology behind this movie which in this movie Wes Craven himself is the exposition guy. He's the one that Heather goes to and he lays out everything you need to know about the movie in that one scene and not his house, but some of his stuff was actually in that house. They took stuff from his own actual living space and brought it into that that house. Original Freddy Glove is there, which I always heard, and God forgive me if I've told this story already, but I always love it. He's one of those guys, kind of a... Yeah, he was like, I was never a memorabilia guy. Yeah. So even there's a lot of, mis- you know, yeah. not, not anything that's actually like him in real life in there. Because he's got like a room with a lot of memorabilia in it. Right. But I guess they wanted that just to make it look good. Yeah. But apparently in his very nice house that he had for a long time, he was like, I didn't put anything up. I didn't put any memorabilia up. But I did put the original Freddy Glove on top of the fireplace mantle because I, I should never not be grateful for this glove buying me my house. Sure. So... Yeah, I always liked that. Yeah, so yeah, absolutely. And he kept some of the costumes from the first movie, and those are the costumes that, like Heather, the pajamas. Those yeah. are her pajamas. I believe those are her pajamas from the first movie, like actual same ones. Yeah, and John Saxon. We'll yeah. Talk, okay, we'll talk about yeah. him later. Okay, yeah. but yeah, that made me think of that. <laughs> yeah, but he lays out the entire thing. So. If you haven't seen this movie, which I suggest you do, it's yeah. it's a really good and really interesting movie, and knowing the background behind it makes it even more interesting, I think. Yeah. But the basic gist is that there is, in the real world, this dream demon of sorts that is represented by Freddy Krueger, and that's what Wes Craven was having nightmares about when he wrote the first one, but the act of telling the story is basically drawing that demonic force whatever it is and putting it in the story so as long as the story continues then that force is trapped within it so it's it's a it's a movie about uh storytellers and the power that they have over these forces in the real world and how they can actually affect things like that but once freddy was killed in the movies and there were no more movies like i said this was the longest gap this one came out in 94 Freddy's Dead came out in 91, so this is the longest gap between any of the the nightmares so far. Within that gap, that allowed Freddy to escape and into the real world. Yeah. I I thought it would be really neat in retrospect, of course. This is a nightmare marketing strategy, though, mind you, so I realize this could have never happened. Uh But if they had marketed this movie as Freddy just being a thought 
and no images of him in the trailer yeah. on the posters or anything. And then you and then Freddy eventually happens. Yeah. When you see him the first time, you realize, oh, he's going to be in this. Yeah. Like even just the idea of Robert England dressing up like him, yeah. you know, in the TV yeah. appearance, which is actually based on a real life incident, from what I understand. Oh, really? Not not the actual like A and B of it, mm. but Wes and Robert went on a cable access show one time or something to defend horror movies, I guess. Oh. And he goes, the people that turned up to support uh, us yeah. were like Freddy, yeah. yeah. He was kind of thrown off by that a little bit. Yeah. And that's what spawned this whole thing. So that being said. A, a minimal marketing strategy over the will they or won't they with Freddy. Mm-hmm. I think still could have been enough to intrigue people to get him into the theaters. The reviewers would have blown it for him yeah. unless they signed some sort of agreement or something. Yeah. But I like the idea of him just being a thought because that goes into classic horror, the unknown, the right. whole thing. I think that would be really neat yeah. if they'd have just done it that way. Because, you know, the poster was like, what, a Freddy glove with Freddy's Yeah, it profile. was the new Freddy with the new yeah. Freddy glove. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I'm just saying, like, that would have been really neat. Like yeah. I said, that would have been a nightmare for New Line. Because they were like, we can't market this shit. Yeah. <laughs> so. I, it, I don't think it, even today, I don't think something like that would have happened necessarily. Yeah. But, yeah, that would have been great to have it, the marketing based on like a stalker for Heather Langenkamp and that's that's what you market the the tension of the movie on but and stalker movies were big at the time yeah that's the other thing voyeurism and stalker stuff was huge in the early 90s yeah sleeping with the enemy uh sliver I'm thinking I'm missing a really big one here uh god a uh, single white female like those yeah, kind of yeah, movies yeah. like yeah. that was that was the thing so That's you true. could almost gone there maybe yeah i don't know but it's just you know hindsight of course right so so yeah you just you look at the movie and we've talked about some of the the real life stuff already but if you go even further especially heather uh it's really focused on her and like i said craven did put a lot of heather langenkamp the actress the person into this movie version of her the scene where heather goes into robert shea's office in the movie and robert is like hey do you want to be in this new nightmare on elm street movie that we're going to make and her trepidation was was saying that like that's pretty much how she acted when he sat down with her in real life (laughs) she was like no i don't think so i don't think people really care about me anymore and i'm not doing it just to appease the shitty limo driver (laughs) right yeah and but if you go even further into it so in this movie heather langenkamp is living in hollywood she is overshadowed by the specter of freddy krueger uh, we see that in the talk show scene where she's yeah. kind ambushed, of she, ambushed yeah, yeah. by uh, Robert England dressed up as Freddy Krueger. Yeah. And all the like kids in the audience dressed like Freddy. And that's one thing that Wes said that kind of, like you were saying, kind of put off a little bit. Is that mm-hmm. like one of the things that Wes intentionally put into this movie was kind of a look at horror movie culture. Yeah. And like the people that go like way overboard i would say or he would say it didn't bother him but it made him kind of not necessarily comfortable like the the limo driver who is taking heather to that uh, interview and all he wants to talk about is freddie and the the killings that he did and like how he loves it when like he slashed whatever and and heather shuts the window on him (laughs) and or the yeah and that's almost an inevitability of movies. Yeah, <laughs> like, right. But that's something that Wes felt when he 
he he told some like really brief story. I think he was at a convention or, or when he goes to, went to conventions and he would have the fans are like, yeah, I loved it when he like slashed her and when he the, the blood and everything. He's like cool, but also after a while it kind of gets to you. Sure. So that's kind of where Wes was coming from with yeah. all this. I can imagine. Uh, but back to Heather. So if you look a little bit further after this, I think the movie kind of predicted kind of her trajectory as well. Because between, like, in the early 2000s, she didn't, she kind of dropped out of acting, like, completely. So between, like, 2000 and the Never Sleep Again documentary is really what kind of started her to try to come back. Hmm. Is she didn't do anything as far as acting goes. And hmm. reading some interviews from her at the time, she's like, well, women my age, you don't get good roles. Any roles that you're offered or that you can even audition for aren't essential to the plot. It's just like ancillary and it's just not worth it. Yeah. And it, it frustrated her. And she did have a, an experience similar to when she went into New Line in the movie. Uh, this happened after the movie. Mm. But she was called, or she called New Line to ask him about something. I don't remember what she was talking yeah. about. But the receptionist on the phone had no idea who she was. She was like, she had to spell out her name and, and things like oh that. My so God. she had zero idea. That's horrible. Yeah. Like she, she helped build that company in yeah. a way. She wasn't an office person, right. but she freaking helped. If you them. work at New Line, you should know Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah. Pretty okay. That should be like 101. Yeah. Like that should be in your train <laughs> or their training manual right. or whatever. You're telling me that Heather Leggenkamp couldn't have played like a fucking college professor in one of the Scream movies? Yeah. Seriously. Yeah. For sure. Come on. Yeah. But uh, she was supposed to be in uh, Wes Craven's Cursed uh, whenever that came out. Like, oh, wow. Yeah. I hadn't thought about that in a, since it was out. But it, it got, her parts got cut. They were they had to do reshoots. Apparently it was a mess, The like the back, backstage stuff. And her schedule didn't match up, so she couldn't be in it. Wow, cursed. But, so, yeah. yeah <laughs> Something cursed, pops sure. in your brain for the first time in 20 years. <laughs> so that's a little tangent. Yeah. But, but yeah, that experience of her in real life not being recognized by this company that her movie helped make a Hollywood player. Like it kind of spurred her on to, she actually made a documentary uh, about herself and her experience in the nightmare mythology. Uh, I am Nancy is what it's called. Okay. Um, I haven't been able to see it. I haven't been able to track it down, right. but that kind of spurred her that plus the, Never Sleep Again, which he narrated. Yeah. Which uh, is a heavily recommended documentary yeah. for my money. So. Yeah, it's really good. Yeah. And th those two things happened at the same time, and that spurred her. So she's she's had some more roles uh, in the last decade. So yeah. that's good. Um, that is good. And, you know, there's, I don't know. I mean, there's starring roles, too, out there. for that. I, I hate that cop-out. And I'm not yeah. saying it's the actress's fault. I'm saying it's Hollywood's fault. It's yeah. like there's tons of freaking lawyer roles out there, like yeah. I said, professors. Like, if it has to be more mature, more aged, there's options, man. Yeah, but at you the same know. time, you say she... If she were to have played a teacher in the Scream movies, like, is that an important role? Like, well, I mean, still, yeah. but you still get residuals. It's a neat cameo, <laughs> and it, it makes money, yeah. but her side, which I think she was saying in this interview I read, was like, there's no, like, meat to these roles. Yeah. It's because of, she's in that age, she's, she's older than the new, the young women coming through Hollywood, and I guess she hasn't reached that level of, yeah. like... Uh, Judy Dench, Helen Mirren, Meryl like, Streep, Meryl yeah. Streep, yeah. And even then, like it's not anything you can market to the target market. Yeah, as as good as they are, yeah. like you're not 
Have you ever been sold a Meryl Streep movie in your life, Chris, by Hollywood? Um, Not I mean, really. No. Right? Yeah. Sold? No. I mean, I've watched it. Not a, ve- a yeah. vehicle, especially. That's yeah, what yeah, I'm yeah. getting at. Yeah, like, yeah. You, she's been in stuff that you've seen. Yeah. But you, you know, you, that they weren't marketing towards you. Right, right. No, yeah. <laughs> or any right. of us. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I get that. So, yeah, that, that was kind of her life then, or the, her life after that. But going back, way back, into the movie itself... So, Heather Langenkamp... I didn't think we were going to have as much to talk about because I like this movie, but there's yeah. a lot of layers here. There is a, there's a ton, actually. <laughs> like, the research I did after we watched it was... Yeah, there's a lot. But Heather Langenkamp in the movie is married to a man named Chase who has his own special effects production studio which he works with Wes Craven in the uh, fictional universe of this movie. Heather Langenkamp in real life at the time was married to a special effects artist, I guess, <laughs> sure. makeup artist, special effects guy. Uh, his name is David Leroy Anderson, and he actually went on to win a couple Academy Awards with yeah. Rick Baker. Oh, cool. Um, yeah. So for The Nutty Professor and Men in Black. Well, that like, makes sense. They yeah. won Academy Awards for those two. Yeah. yeah. Well, well deserved. <laughs> yeah. And uh, the two of them had a son at the time, uh, a very young boy. And in the movie, she has a very young son with this special effects guy uh, husband. So it mirrored her life almost uncomfortably, I think, at times for her. Hmm. Uh, She was saying, her and Robert England as well, actually, because they sometimes had a hard time knowing how to play a scene. Like, do I play it as myself or do I play it as this version of myself? Like, that Wes Craven wants me to be? That's gotta it's, be weird. Yeah, it's it's a, <laughs> it's too close to home, I guess, sometimes. Because yeah. a lot of times, I'm sure that's a lot of just what directors say. Yeah, just be yourself, yeah. you know? If it's not a particular... As long as we're not doing, like, a biopic or a right. historical thing. If we're just... If it's a buddy cop movie, maybe yeah. just play yourself a little bit. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So, but you can imagine if there, you're in a movie that so closely mirrors your life, and then later on your husband in the movie is brutally murdered and dies in a car wreck, yeah. that's got to be not fun to do necessarily. I'm sure you can draw on some real emotion for those scenes, Yeah, but it, it's it's got to be a little weird. Yeah. yeah, our life takes a dark turn. By the way, before we get too deep, you brought up the uh, the car crash. Yeah. I found out, being me being the music guy, that he sang just enough of losing my religion to have to pay for it. <laughs> yeah, because you could so. you you knew what it was. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, exactly. And, <laughs> and that's something I wanted to touch on too. So just jumping into the movie itself, and sure. I'll put some of the background stuff behind, and we'll just jump to it when we yeah. we need to. That's also good to not spoil too much since we're actually recommending the movie. Yeah. So. The basic setup is Heather is having nightmares. And in the opening scene of the movie, which is a homage to the opening scene of the first nightmare where oh, yeah. Freddy's building the glove. Oh, all, all the tributes to the original. Yeah. I mean, there's a there's grocery a list. Yeah. Yeah. We're not going to list them all because sure. there's yeah, too no, no, many no. to list. That'll be fun to do as a viewer. Yeah, maybe some of the big ones we'll, yeah. we'll talk about. But in this opening scene, we realize that this Freddy in this movie is... It's a movie within a movie in a dream. So <laughs> this Freddy is building this glove, but it, we see Heather in her pajamas from the first one on set with her son. Wes Craven's there. Her husband's there. The special effects guys are there. Uh, the scene was brought to you by Barks Root Beer, by oh, the way. Oh, for sure. Because uh, <laughs> Wes, the first time you see Wes Craven 
directing. He has one in his hand as he's directing. And then when you see Heather hanging out with her son yeah. on set, she has one in her hand as well with the, yeah. the label turned towards yeah. the camera as she walks. So, oh, yeah. 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 It's very super, noticeable. Super, super noticeable. Yeah. But in this in this dream, there's a new glove, this mechanical glove, and it, it comes to life. And that it attacks some of the people there. And Heather wakes up and... Everything is just shaking. There's yeah. there's an earthquake going on. They apparently have been going on for a while. Yeah. But I, I don't want to, like I said, I don't want to spoil everything, but this whole first, like, 15, 20 minutes, I thought really set this great mood of, like, tension, and it was just very unnerving. Yeah. Because it was so loud and just noisy, because you go from the music and the screams and the slashing of the dream... Yeah. Directly into the shaking of the house and yeah. everything's breaking. Yeah, yelling child, yelling child, <laughs> and then there's like the phone. <laughs> exactly, there's like half a minute of rest before the phone starts ringing, and the phone won't stop ringing. Yeah, because it's the stalker in the movie has been doing phone calls basically, yeah. and there's a few of those, and then the limo driver calls, and then he calls again. So for this whole fifteen twenty minute section. You just can't get settled, and I think that's a really great way to start the movie. It, it sets you off on this this path that you haven't been settled yet, and by the time she gets into the car, she goes and you see that it's the interview with Robert England there, and then you see like how her life is really not good, and yeah. she's in a bad space. Yeah. So I think all that noise kind of helps put you in the headspace of Heather Langenkamp in this movie. I thought it was really, really, really well done. Yeah. It's like almost like Robert's parallel in this is being more like Wes in yeah. a sense. Yeah. Because his real life character is painting pictures of Freddy. Yeah. That's his one of his only struggles that we can tell. Yeah. They didn't dive I mean, this movie is obviously about Heather yeah. and not Robert. Uh, England. I just yeah, say that because yeah. there is two Roberts yeah, yeah. in this movie playing themselves. Right, yeah. But Robert England seems like he has it a little bit easier than anybody else. Like even more so than Wes. It, it's crazy. Yeah. So Freddy quote unquote Freddy yeah. has it the easiest. <laughs> yeah. It and it's a little weird I thought because uh, when you mentioned that Robert England was painting Freddy, uh, apparently the nightmares that Heather is having other people are having nightmares as well. She sure. asked Bob Shea, he doesn't say he was, but when the phone rings, she's like, "Are you going to answer that?" He's like, and he pauses. He's like, "We have people to answer that for us." <laughs> yeah. So he's he's scared of something. Wes Craven says he's having nightmares. And Robert England is painting Freddy. So they're all having nightmares. All these people yeah. that worked on the original movie. Uh, but Robert England, yeah, he... Heather is supposed to meet him, like, the next day. Yeah. And he's just gone. He just takes off. He just yeah. takes off. And yeah. we never see him again. And they never even mention him again. I, I'm, I'm assuming that's because this is the part in the movie where Freddy actually starts to materialize. Yeah. You know, even though it's in nightmares, it's in their real world nightmares. Yeah. So if you have him there, I feel like maybe someone said, eh, that could be a bit much overkill yeah. or confusing in a sense. It could be. Leaving Robert as more of a mysterious guy could also put the doubt in some viewers' minds yeah. that maybe this is just Robert. Maybe that's the twist. You know, I'm just trying to yeah, think maybe, out, yeah. you know, spitballing here. Maybe he's calling something. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it is, it's obviously it's his, voice. his voice on yeah. the phone because they had to get a Freddy sound alike. So right. why not go for the real thing? Yeah. Don't do what they tried to do in two kids, <laughs> which is weird. Cause this is what two would have been potentially yeah. had uh Wes gotten his way. 
Possibly. Maybe, or it had probably been more fictional based with other actors. Yeah. From what but I... the germ of the idea is there. Yeah. From what I read, this... The initial kernel of this idea of Freddy coming to the real world was kind of talked about around the time that 3 happened. But it just... It never made it even to Wes Craven's early script. Early sure. version of the script. Well, since we're still talking about Wes, I figured I'd bring this up, Chris. I, I've read that there's like this uh, famous non-scene that was really heavily discussed i think it was i think it's even in the original script still or something mm. where they do a little bit more wes craven in it because mm. i think they well they talked to him once or twice in the movie yeah after the like dream sequence he doesn't show up for a while he's at the funeral yeah that then that the scene where he talks to heather and that's about it yeah so there's supposedly the scene that was going to happen where i guess wes craven is so like he's not even sleeping anymore yeah. because uh, he's running from Freddy, yeah. but he's finishing his script so he could make it a reality yeah. and something like that. So basically what happens is it's one of those things where you're walking down the street. So Heather's walking down the street. The van supposedly pulls up almost like it's going to kidnap her, yeah. but it's Wes like trying to get to her be like, Hey, you know, I, I don't know what was going to be said, yeah. but apparently the idea is he's paranoid. He's not sleeping. He's got coffee in his van and Michael Berryman apparently is the wheel man of the van. <laughs> so I'm like, what a bunch of cool callbacks that would have been, yeah. would have been. So would you have liked to have seen something like that? Do you think it would have hurt or helped the movie or just for personal reasons? It depends on how they did it. I think seeing them again would have been, or seeing Wes again and seeing Michael Berryman at all would have been great. I think it's yeah. a really, really cool callback. That would have been fun. I, I wonder if it may turn too much attention to Wes and over Heather though. Like, if if the whole gist of the movie was Wes needed to finish the script in order to put Freddy back in the bottle, basically. Right. Like, I think that would have taken away from Heather's triumph at yeah. the end of the movie. Like, like she has no control over it. She's supposed yeah. to be more empowered than that. So yeah. if you do that, maybe it it's, takes away yeah. her mojo. She's just a, a prop in Wes Craven's right. brain movie. Right. But we all know what the true missed opportunity is of this film, right, Chris? What's that? Because... I mean, we're a year out from Jurassic Park, so every kid's got dinosaurs in his room, <laughs> yes, right? Yes. And obviously this kid does too. Yeah, Dylan. The, the kid from Pet Cemetery. Yeah, yeah. And Full House. I'll admit that I know that. Apollo 13, Kindergarten Cop. Oh, oh, yeah. oh, he's the boys have penis, girls have vagina kid. Oh my God. <laughs> I did not put that together. Yeah. That's, that's tremendous. Yeah. Okay. So dinosaurs are big. Every kid's got a dinosaur room now. I'm sure some others did, but obviously Jurassic Park, like, really sent this into the stratosphere yeah and it's just never gone away now which is it's fine yeah. i dig dinosaurs yeah uh not literally um so yeah all right so he's got his favorite 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 thing his like a security blanket basically is the stuffed dinosaur called rex yes rex is the one that looks after him at the foot of his bed inside the sheets yeah keeps the the bad man away mm-hmm and I, I love that. I actually, my heart just kind of goes, man, yeah, because we all have had that at yeah, some point in yeah. our lives. Mine was an over-the-head thing. I told you about that. Yeah. But his is under the bed, and I totally get that, too. So there's that really cool thing with that they established this from day one, part one of Nightmare on Elm Street, that if you see a slash on something, that means Freddy got to it. Yeah. And then when you see those slashes on the stuffing of Rex... You're like, oh, shit's on. Yeah. Right? That's kind of, that's one of the big turning points of the film. You're like, okay. Yeah. We're, we're going to see Freddy for sure. Yeah. And he ain't going after Heather. I mean, he is and he isn't. Yeah. He's definitely going after her. Yeah. But 
He's going to do the family first. Right. As soon as that husband's out of the way, right for the kid. Mm-hmm. To me, this is the missed opportunity. Mm-hmm. <laughs> is that Rex obviously has legitimately battled Freddy. Yeah. And we see the slash marks in his, in his side and stomach. Mm-hmm. But we never saw the actual fight, which implies that Freddy went at a t-rex that was <laughs> that had materialized as a real thing uh-huh. in the course of this nightmare but now that battle is just in my mind and i never got to see it <laughs> yeah that to me is one of the true missed opportunities i realized that would have taken the movie in a whole other direction yeah. it's not the direction it would have anything we talked the about budget here. too <laughs> but man can you imagine yeah. seeing that i can't imagine it i'm, I'm imagining it say. right now yeah i mean man <laughs> You're like, my arm's longer than yours, dude. You know, like that kind of stuff. Okay. But that's just what I wanted to see. A- absolutely. And there were two battles with the dinosaur, at least. Oh. Because, yeah. Oh, and he could have been a real dick to that T-Rex. Because what's what, the first image you see of Freddy in Nightmare 1 is that he's like totally pulled. Or the second. Oh, the, right. the first real yeah, nightmare. Yeah. He's pulling his arms out and yeah. they're extending to this fantastic length. Yeah. And he's just looking at that T-Rex with his little T-Rex arms <laughs> and going, suck it. <laughs> That's all. That, that, that sounds a bit more like a, a Freddy versus Jason tone to, yeah. to, to that kind of thing. Yeah, but maybe we, they could have put that in that one. We need to do something at least that absurd possibly in my lifetime. Right. Even if it's just like a campy short film that sure. you can put online now. Yeah. We can do that now. Yeah. 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 <laughs> uh, but yeah, I I like that you brought up the, the son, Dylan, and the fact that he had this power that he didn't really even know. Because he believed that Rex was his protector so Rex protected him in his dreams, at least for a while. Yeah. Uh, the Freddy thing in this movie did get too powerful after a certain point and came after both of them, Dylan and his mother in the dreams. But the one scene that I really liked was when Heather was reading Hansel and Gretel to Dylan in bed. Uh, this hit home to me very strongly, not necessarily because of what they were doing there. Like, I don't really remember my parents reading me bedtime stories, things like yeah. that. But something Dylan said in that hit really close to home to me, and it fits thematically with the movie itself. So Heather is reading the story. She's reading it. It gets pretty violent, and she's uncomfortable with it because of everything that's going on. Uh, the, the pictures in the book, actually, Wes was talking about them. If you notice the witch being tossed into the oven, which, I mean, oven is, has been a thing throughout the entire series. Right. But if you look at her hands, they're kind of like claws. So that was intentionally made to sort of emulate the the feeling of Freddy and yeah. that but she's reading it and after all this happens in the story she's like I don't think we should keep going with this and Dylan is like no you have to finish the story and yeah it's important yeah it's important and that was something that with me was important to me when I was a kid my dad loved horror movies and I would have to go to bed early but I would hear the movies that he had sometimes when I was trying to go to sleep sure and I wouldn't necessarily hear the ending of them, but I would hear the bad stuff going on for a while. See, I specifically remember uh, the first time I was exposed to Child's Play ooh. was when I was going to sleep and oh. like Friend Till the End and the screaming and stuff. Oh my God. But I never got any resolution at that point. So that's something that's important to me. It's like, no, finish the story. Give sure. me the happy ending or yeah. give me whatever ending. Just give me closure to that story. Yeah. So that hit home to me. But also in the movie itself, it summarizes everything that Wes Craven tells Heather in like that 10 minute scene. It summarizes it in one line. Like you have to finish the story. Like if you finish the story, 
it's wrapped up and you can mm. bring him back into to whatever the thing is that's the power of storytelling right there nice i i i love that you got that out of it and i i didn't see that except for the obvious callback to the story at the end of the film yeah which i won't spoil yeah but it's there so man that was awesome man it's i, I love it when things like that it's you can tell that it's really personal for them when when stuff like that kind of comes through and west craven is such a great director and i i mean people know it but i still think he's kind of underrated because he's, he's very, underrated in overall hollywood yeah. that's for goddamn sure because he's yeah. understated in what he, he doesn't brag about anything yeah. he's not like oh this is he just he puts in these things that mean so much and especially coming from all the stuff in between the first one and this one the nightmare movies yeah like you can see such a huge difference in quality yeah you can't do one without some sort of hands-on thing with him yeah and it not be just like yeah okay you know <laughs> and that's how yeah he's just a good storyteller man and that's all and yeah like i said i like him in interviews he actually comes off really humble yeah for a guy that apparently is was pretty well to do throughout his life yeah seems pretty damn humble for somebody yeah in that because position. I, I don't know his exact background necessarily but yeah i mean he went to like really nice really good schools yeah. and he's very like highly educated yeah and you can tell but he's not like oh i know this he's just yeah. a dude yeah. that like he was in a high class not a high class society but yeah. he was definitely at least upper middle class yeah to where he was well off enough to he could go to these art colleges yeah his parents are cool with it that whole kind of thing like yeah. that supportive nature. Yeah. He hasn't seemed to have a struggle, but he's just got a great brain for this. Yeah. The struggle that Craven himself had that we kind of touched on in some of the earlier one, the earlier ones where he was kind of not wanting to do horror necessarily. Sure. Is that he didn't want to be pigeonholed as this thing. Yeah. Uh, he started with, he actually started in porn. He did some porn movies under a pseudonym. Wow. Um, I've never seen any of them. Oh, but sure. before... They're not going to be any good anymore anyway. Yeah, so. before <laughs> before or around, like, The Last House on the Left, uh, he did porn under a different name. And then he started with, like, some of the most extreme horror movies you can think of. Yeah, that still hold up as, like, wow. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know these movies. Yeah. Like, they're, they're famous and infamous at the same time. Exactly. And then, so him starting there after being after going to these like prestigious schools or yeah. colleges whatever uh it's it's an interesting thing and it shows that yeah, like, he said he alienated all of his old friends yeah and that was one of the stigmas <laughs> that he was trying to get away from when he was doing stuff like the twilight zone and he kept getting pulled back into it yeah. uh this movie was wes craven's new nightmare was he didn't necessarily want as much blood and violence in it as there was in it there are very few death scenes in this movie. Mm, true. Uh, we've talked about the one with Chase, so I'll just yeah. use that one as an example. It wasn't necessarily written that bloody or violent because Wes Craven didn't think it was necessary. Sure, sure. But the studio was like, this is a Freddy Krueger movie. We need blood and violence. So yeah. it was punched like, up a lot. Yeah, I feel like the first nightmare at the very beginning with the claw. Yeah. Like that was, yeah, was punched definitely, up a lot too. Yeah, yeah, it does seem that way. Because that definitely gives the the quote-unquote fans of the genre in the sense yeah the the yahoo versions yeah <laughs> like oh we got blood okay this is gonna yeah. be all right you know, like yeah. that's i i feel like they did that intentionally for that yeah. reason so and i think i don't know it, it may have been even better if that stuff hadn't happened up front because chase did get killed pretty early in the movie and yeah. then the next death isn't for a really long time um there was so much tension already with the earthquakes and the phone calls and all the noise and everything <laughs> you didn't necessarily need that i don't yeah. think it's 
bad because of yeah. it. But I would just be curious to see what would have happened if there had been no interference from the studio and it didn't, if he was, Craven was just a hundred percent allowed to do whatever came into his brain. Sure. But yeah, talking about Wes and his, his struggle trying to find his footing in Hollywood where he wanted to be, uh, it comes through in other ways that you may not realize. One of the characters represents one of his Hollywood antagonists in real life. So when Heather finally has to take Dylan to the hospital because he's getting worse, he's not sleeping, he's having, he's, he's a sleepwalker and he's doing, he's being very dangerous in his sleepwalking nightly ventures. By the way, I'm not a fan of Dylan's trance acting. It's, I realize he's a little kid, but man, that was, that's a little too over the top for me, but that's all nitpick. I'm kind of with you on that. Yeah. Yeah. um, I think in when he's not tranced, he's he's really good. Sure. But, oh yeah, yeah but, absolutely. Yeah. Sorry. But, continue. Yeah. <laughs> so antagonist of Wes. Yeah. So Heather takes Dylan to the hospital, and the doctor, who is named Doctor Hefner, she is looking over Dylan, things like that. I didn't like her character in the movie. Not that I didn't like how Wes wrote her. No, she's easy to hate. She was so judgmental about yeah. everything. And she, in a way, represents the people that would look at Wes Craven and be like, oh, you do horror? Do you think that's a good idea? Like, what, do you know what you're doing? Yeah. When, when you make these movies, do you know what you're doing to people? Yeah. That's part of what that represents. Sure. But specifically, she represents the head of the MPAA, the Motion yeah. Picture Association of America, <laughs> who at the time was named Richard Hefner. So Dr. <laughs> Hefner is a very clear representation of this gentleman who just... And we use that term loosely. Yeah. <laughs> who gave Craven such a hard time because Craven isn't opposed to using violence and mm. yeah. and blood and gore and things like that when it's necessary. And, of course, the MPAA doesn't like that kind yeah. of stuff. Oh. So I thought that was really funny when he talked about that in the... Uh, in the commentary nice i like that yeah but this whole movie for him he said it in some of those fangorias i read is really kind of a maybe not necessarily finding answers but just kind of talking about his place in hollywood and like how he doesn't feel part of it sometimes and he feels kind of just because of what he did and what he's good at, I guess it, he gets looked down upon and the yeah. the nurse represents that. Well, the doctor and the nurses represent that. Yeah. And it's a shame. He, it seems like he almost thinks of maybe some of the hardcore fans as being all like that. And they're not all they're like not, that. I don't think he and did. Maybe, but, yeah. you know, and so it's like maybe embrace the side of them who are, they give you that credence as, Hey, this person's like, you know, there's people that are doctors and lawyers and PTA yeah. members and whatever that love these things, sure. too. Yeah. So, you know, it's like, yeah, just embrace that side of it because there, there is a side of that. When he talks about being kind of not satisfied with where he is, I don't I think he came to accept it and he was fine with it yeah, after yeah. a while. And especially around this point, I think he was fine with yeah. it. I'm, just, I, I'm, I'm glad he publicly never like, oh, you know. Yeah, you know, but I don't yeah. think it. Everything I've read, it was never about the fans necessarily, other than like, yeah, the people that are like, oh, blood, I, I love murder. Sure. Like, those are like, okay, dude, like, cool, but yeah. calm down. Yeah. But like Betsy Palmer talking about how I can't believe how many babies I've gotten to hold yeah. from strangers because of that thing. Yeah. Because of Friday 13th. Right. 
that's weird. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I get that part about it. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, it's... There's there's nothing wrong with liking yeah. horror and things like oh. that. And I love horror. I love extreme horror and, like, vile, vile stuff. I like to watch it yeah. because I'm a weirdo. Yeah. Never but, partaken in it. Never, yeah. never been arrested, you know. I think what... <laughs> I think what Craven is really talking about is, like, the establishment. Yeah. And no. not the fans. He, yeah, he does what he, he does what he does for the fans. Yeah. And he would be the first one to defend that Yahoo versus somebody yeah. that looks down on that person for, yeah. for liking it. Yeah. I And I've never not gotten that from him, yeah, so yeah. I appreciate that part. Yeah. I didn't mean to say that he was down all the fans. I just, yeah, no, so, I get it, yeah. You know, mentally, you, you know, just think about the things that are positive. About right. It if you do get to that point where it's a little low for you. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. I, I like how we've, it's just like the movie. We're diving deep into who these people actually are. Yeah. And and not spoiling the movie. This is this is a great talk. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And I think this will enhance a viewing. If you've already seen the movie, go watch it again after you listen to this because it, yeah. it will enhance everything. This seems like one of those movies that people, if they saw it, they haven't seen it yeah. in twenty five years. I basically, seen it a long since it's time. been out. So yeah. I, I feel like this is going to be a good rewatch for a lot yeah. of people that might be listening here. I, before we get out of the the hospital, though, oh, yeah, I yeah. do want to say I really liked to dislike the nurses. Uh-huh. Because uh, one of them is actually Craven's daughter, uh, oh. the younger one, the two that go into the room with Dylan and sure. the babysitter. Yeah, she the uh, one that got killed. Spoiler. She <laughs> she she did get hit. Oh okay, but oh, the one she didn't get punched. Okay. Well, the one got punched and elbowed. Yeah. And apparently, when Heather elbowed that the older nurse, yeah. that wasn't a was direction a sh- from West. That was just Heather being in character. Oh, it was a shoot. Okay. So when you see the nurse walk out out of the shot yeah. immediately, that's because she just got elbowed and she didn't know it was happening. So. <laughs> uh, but yeah, the that was fun. So there's like a lot of fun stuff. There's some tongue in cheek humor in it, but it's not from Freddy Krueger. Okay. Freddy Krueger in this movie is not a funny guy he's meant to be this evil representation like he was in the original but different yeah i think he had one line that could even be remotely a callback to jokey freddy yeah and that was like in that scene that you're talking about and even then it's still not ha ha yeah you know that's just freddy he's just not being uh, Freddie Youngman. <laughs> right there, so. <laughs> so, what do you think about this version of Freddie? Like the the demeanor and the look. Um, I don't like the look. Yeah. If I had to really criticize, yeah. I I just think it looks too rubbery. Yeah. Too, it's too clean almost. Like it's yeah. it's almost like Grey's Anatomy looking Freddie. Like, uh, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like it's real veiny. It's real. Yeah. You see the bones and the veins and stuff, which is probably closer to what a burn victim would look like i get that part about it maybe maybe but but still it just i feel like it looks less like a burn and more just like some sort of weird approximation yeah it's like uh it's like freddie when he's uh, getting resurrected in the junkyard and he's not Mm. quite there yet right and (laughs) a little melty yeah so i i get the idea of changing the look to give you a new persona and i'm sure that's why they did it yeah but it, it that that part doesn't work for me honestly. I don't I don't like the glove and I don't like the new look. I I don't mind the glove. It's to well it's one fine. of the things I mean, it reminds me of is the poster art for the first Nightmare on Elm Street 
the one where the one that's on the American home video versions, yeah. almost all of them. The one yeah. that, that the woman shot. on the bed that doesn't really look like Heather. <laughs> right. It was probably done before they knew who was being cast or oh, whatever. Sure, yeah, yeah. But the glove in that is like bony and meaty. Sure. And this glove looks like that glove to me. Yeah. I've never heard him mention that anywhere, but it looks like it was inspired by that to sure. me. I mean, obviously, I'll, I don't mind the glove as much as I mind the face. Yeah, yeah. The look. The, I don't yeah. like the the tubes on the glove. I think that's a little weird. Yeah. But yeah, I'm I'm kind of with you there. I I like the fact that they did change Freddy. Yeah, the persona's yeah. fine. There's nothing wrong with the persona here at all. Well, I mean, even the look. Oh, oh. like I like that they changed it because. This isn't the Freddy Krueger from the previous six movies. This look is supposed to be based on the thoughts of these real-life people. So they're not necessarily going to think about the exact thing. Especially if Heather hasn't thought about this stuff for a really long time. Her, her thoughts on Freddy Krueger may have yeah. changed for over, sure. over time. Yeah. And that's what that represents. Okay. But at the same time... While I do like that they changed it, I don't like what they changed it to necessarily. Um, the the hat and the coat is just a weird choice. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like like the the Maltese Freddy, <laughs> right? You know, it's just and you know, honestly, the final battle it's just okay. It's not great. The effects they didn't have budget for Jurassic Park effects, <laughs> right? So As we established, <laughs> they're once they go into that final dream sequence, it's really elaborate as yeah. far as where they go. And you know, the other thing about the final battle mm. is that I noticed, did, did you notice on the pillars, like it's very Roman, like pillar, yeah. like dungeon looking yeah. thing. And I saw a couple of the seven deadly sins written on the pillars. Oh yeah. You and mentioned then that, yeah. they never went there with it. Like, yeah. like this has been a decent motif in the series yeah. on and off, yeah. but it's been there. And the fact that you see it clearly visible in the final battle and it's, I guess it's just, you know, for dressing. Maybe, maybe, mm -hmm. like, it's just supposed to represent something old and, and ancient and, like, more, I guess, old, older than any religion that we know of, you know, kind of thing. This is representative of the basis that turned into all these, like, thousands of religions yeah. around the world and that kind of thing. Yeah. I actually like the fountain bit. I was, that might that might surprise some yeah. people, but I actually like the fountain. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it worked for me. Yeah. It actually looked like that. they spent a few bucks on it, too. Yeah. The, there, thing, so. the whole final scene wasn't terrible, but there were there were bits of it. It's really, to me, just the effects. Yeah. Uh, Freddy's tongue makes a triumphant comeback in this movie. And how. Yeah. I and... will say, I like the tongue better than the three... Of snaky, wormy dream demon oh, things. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, if you're if you're gonna do a little comparison yeah, here, yeah. I I think the tongue's an upgrade from the right. previous entry. Yeah, <laughs> but that being said, yeah, but and then when Freddy opens his mouth really, really wide like a snake, yeah. like it, it's a callback to three. Yeah, it is mm -hmm. the the head. Is done well. K and B did the effects, the, some of the makeup effects. The toy company? Which, no, the, oh. the special effects company. Oh, okay, sorry. Like, <laughs> super well known at this point. Um, Greg Nicotero. We've talked about him before oh, on the show. Okay, He's yeah, K and B. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm just having fun. <laughs> no disrespect. Yeah. Uh, but the so the makeup was good, but it just looks still. There was no like motion to it. It was just like this plastic thing. Yeah. Uh, so it was. It takes me a little bit out at the end. Um, I like the idea, just the the budget wasn't there, I think. Yeah, but even then, like, how much budget did they have in the first one? Yeah, and but is there it, anything it wasn't better? that elaborate in the first one either. No, I understand that, but is there any better nightmare 
in the series than the first one. Like that first one that uh, oh yeah the best, for sure. the best friend has yeah. My God, man! Yeah. Like that one. Yeah. No, I and, agree with you. Yeah. That's all I'm trying to yeah. say. But the, yeah. By, by, I'm not saying there is a high standard for the final battle in any of these. Yeah. I think the best one, honestly, for my money, and maybe I should do this on the wrap-up, is probably part four. Has the most satisfying ending, maybe, oh, okay. of all the battles. Because yeah. think about how part one ends. Yeah. And, you know, there's stuff like that. Yeah. Is all I'm trying to say. Yeah. This one, I'm just like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's okay. Yeah. It's... It's not the final battle isn't as good as the overall film. I will say and it takes a little bit of it out for me, yeah. and we'll probably hurt it a little bit in the rankings overall. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I, I'm with you on that. I like the movie overall. Like I said, definitely recommend it. It, yeah, and the the ending is fine. That's that's yeah. it's one of those. It's, it, when you build up something so well, like how do you? pay it off it's, yeah. it's hard i know it is and the actual final final part of the film is at least more satisfying than part one i will say oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> well we we ripped that apart well, so. i don't just trying to right, be positive so yeah just trying to be positive yeah uh but yeah i guess we're about yeah. done really but i did want to say we mentioned john saxon earlier john saxon oh, yeah. i love john saxon is He's, that his original wardrobe that's what i, I wanted think so, to know yeah <laughs> the, yeah so we won't spoil why John Saxon's in this film. <sighs> yeah, I want but to, but you, I won't. But it's a really cool payoff. Yeah. And the way they set up the second John Saxon scene from the first one yeah. is done so brilliantly. Yeah. That is probably the most underrated part of this entire movie. Yeah. Maybe one of the most underrated parts of the entire franchise from a storytelling point of view. And that's how you write a damn script. Yeah. Thank you, Wes. <laughs> so, yeah, I... Yeah, sorry. Completely agree. John Saxon <laughs> is the best, and I'll just say that lines start to get blurred. John Saxon does play John Saxon in this movie. Not every person that made a cameo in this movie did play themselves, though. Uh, Robert Shea's sister, Lynn Shea, was a teacher in the, or Nancy's teacher in the original Nightmare on Elm Street. She plays a nurse in this movie. She does not play herself. Yes, so, always, I always recognize Lynn Shea because she's yeah. in some of my favorite movies of all time. Yeah. And we should also mention that Tuesday night is mm -hmm. in the funeral scene. And so is Nick Corey, who played Rod in the original. Really? I didn't yeah. see him. Yeah. That's awesome. So, yeah, we should mention that just in case someone's actually paying attention. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, when we were watching it, I, I tracked the the cast list at the end, just looking for all himself and herself in the yeah. credits. So, yeah. Nice. Just to make sure I, I caught all of them. But, yeah, a lot of them were the new line people that you wouldn't really recognize anyway, except for Bob Shea, who was in part two. Yeah. Yes, exactly. But a lot less leather this time. Yeah, to say thankfully less leather. <laughs> Not so much in his office. Yeah. I, I don't think that that secretary was playing herself because all I saw was the cleavage. No. So I, she, yeah. So you know what they were casting that day. <laughs> you want to get to the kill count? Yeah, there's not a lot to get to, but if you're going to watch the movie, you haven't seen the movie, don't want any spoilers, go ahead and stop it now. Yeah, there you go. Go to cnjradio.com and then come back after you watch the movie, because we're about to talk about all of the deaths in this movie. Like I said, there's not a lot. The first one in the movie that we see, at the time we think it might just be a dream, there are two right off the bat in the opening sequence. It's a movie within a dream within a movie. Yeah, suck it, Christopher Nolan. <laughs> yes. I'm kidding, I like it. Nolan. Yes. <laughs> uh, there were two deaths in the dream that we think is just Heather Langenkamp's dream, so I initially didn't count these two. Uh, Chuck and Terry are two of Heather's husband's 
crew members. They're working on the glove when it comes to life. One of them, Chuck, gets slashed in the throat very bloodily. Terry gets slashed in the chest very bloodily, and that's when Heather wakes up. Didn't think those were real, but we find out later on. They're reported missing. Yeah, Chase tells Heather when she calls him while he's on the set, working on the glove, unbeknownst to her, that Chuck and Terry didn't show up to work. Yeah, and we I think we hear in the news later on that those two men were actually yeah. killed. Yeah, so confirmed kills. Yes, confirmed kills. Number three, also early in the movie, is Chase as he is coming home to check on Dylan because he's had another episode. He falls asleep in the car. He dozes. He does the the doze off thing. Yeah. He ha- he feels a tickle in his groin, and it's it's. He was right. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's only the blades of Freddy's glove come up through the seat in this like water effect that looks a bit dated right now. Yeah, yeah but, it does. Yeah. Oh, by the way, before we get out of this kill, uh-huh. I gotta say when he's leaving that set to go back home. Mm-hmm. This part bothers me, and I have to get it off my chest. Okay. There's a scene. Oh, yeah, you see time. Heather on one end yeah. where she's at home on the phone, and he's on the set. Well, he's already hung up the phone, and she's hung up the phone. Yeah. Then they flash back to her at home, yeah. but you could still hear the audio of him leaving yeah. the set. Does that make any kind of sense? That's a real. That's that's a big mistake of an edit, I think. I think it, it was really... just to keep audio continuity, so it's not like a drop in audio. But yeah, you're right. I never noticed that in movies, yeah, and that right. really stuck out this time. Sorry, I had to get that off my chest. It really <laughs> bothered me. It took me out for a split second. Okay, so go go ahead. Back Speaking of chest, Chase oh. is slashed in the chest oh. in the car. He. This is where no Freddy stick shift though, right? No, <laughs> or, not, or like no, yeah. speedometer or whatever. It is kind of similar to uh, Dan's some, death. Yeah, it's number five. Yeah. yeah, but it's not quite the same. But yeah. it's a truck, and he yeah. dozes off. I thought of it though. Yeah. yeah, but Chase is slashed in the car, and he crashes. So they think he just fell asleep and crashed sure so it's it's a good uh, excuse oh yeah by the way so you mentioned losing my religion in okay. the movie that he sings that while he's trying to keep himself awake that's the song he sings to okay. try to keep himself awake which I, is not the way to go you're not going to want to go rem if you don't right. want to fall asleep i'm just my opinion right <laughs> you know maybe something a little more upbeat yeah thunderstruck i don't know okay go ahead but i thought the choice of lyrics and song were apropos because this is kind of a callback to the original movie where there's all the religion involved yeah. uh, you talked about the set dressing of the seven deadly sins in the the demonic place at the end of the movie there were the the cross and the painting of jesus in nancy's house yeah. and tina's house and in this one there's not so much religion throughout the people in hollywood you see that in freddy's spaces where it's mm-hmm. kind of evil stuff yeah. but since Chase is singing, I'm losing my religion, I think that's kind of a, a tell that, like, he's, he's about to get killed. Like, yeah. you need to have religion. You need that cross. Maybe there's something wider going on there that Wes yeah. Craven was thinking about. Because mm-hmm. he's very into, like, spirituality and uh, Eastern, Western religions, things mm-hmm. like that. So I think that was an intentional choice. Oh, nice. say losing my religion and then murder. So, nice catch. Yeah. I like it. But he, well, Chase was the third one, by the way. His fictional effects company name did you did you catch it oh uh, god it's a pun yeah. uh, go ahead sorry cut, cut to the chase yes so oh. chase gets cut up in the movie <sighs> wow yep and then the fourth death i mentioned this character very briefly the babysitter julie oh yeah 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 she is attending to dylan 
while Heather is being subdued by the police at the hospital because Dr. Hefner thinks that she's abusing her son. And Julie is watching Dylan because at this point she believes Heather and Dylan, so she doesn't want to let the nurses put him to sleep. Not to sleep. They're not going to kill him. (laughs) They don't want them to give him a shot so that he will go to sleep. And this is where Julie punches one of the nurses. uh, Things like that. The nurses end up getting out of the room because she's a maniac in there. And then in a scene that is a hundred percent, thousand percent callback to Tina's death, yeah, the right. first death in the entire series, yep. she is attacked by Freddy while she's not even asleep, but Dylan is dozing off. Yeah. And Dylan being asleep or in a state of non, like, he's not fully awake. Yeah, he's an REM. <sighs> that's not what that means but that's a good one sorry (laughs) thank you but freddy attacks julie because dylan freddy's coming through dylan basically yeah and she is attacked on the ground she's dragged up the wall up to the ceiling when the nurses finally open the door julie is just floating in midair because she's being attacked by freddy but they can't see freddy yes so it was uh, that's my favorite death in the movie 100% oh yeah like, for sure yeah but yeah the julie character was interesting i thought because mm-hmm. i don't think anyone is going to believe that it wasn't freddy that was making the calls and things like that yeah. but the limo driver and julie were supposed to be kind of red herrings they're like you don't know their intentions sure and so when you see heather kind of give julie the side eye sometimes yeah. it, early in the movie that was yeah. supposed to be kind of a bigger thing throughout the movie but he huh. kind of played it down yeah. played it down and to I me kinda, i just kind of saw it as the thing of like a lot of nannies and babysitters in Hollywood yeah. become very motherly to the kid, and they almost like them more after a while because of that yeah. reason. It, it did. There, I, to me, I got a little bit of like, is there this like possessiveness from Julie that maybe Heather doesn't like? Yeah. Uh, I got that in the opening scene when Julie says something that kind of makes Heather kind of pause for a second. Hmm. Um, but in right before this scene where Julie gets killed, when she's there at the hospital. Heather has a nightmare and she goes to check on Dylan, but Julie's already there. And that, that's that's that one of those things weird. where you're like, wait, what's what's going on here? Exactly. But then she quickly redeems herself and she's like, okay, go Julie. And she punches yeah. the nurse. Like, yeah. you can't help but yeah. cheer for her. Yeah. Another really well done piece of writing yeah. there by putting so, the doubt there. Yeah. Put the doubt, then make her the hero and then kill her like immediately. Yeah. How so, dare you not trust her? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. There were only four deaths in the movie. Yeah. But these are... Bloody violent pictures with a hundred deaths in every movie. Yeah. <laughs> Keep saying that. It's an it's another one. Like a lot of these movies in the Nightmare series, I have a hard time calling slashers. I mean, I guess it is. Yeah. There's four deaths in it, but and he's literally slashing when he kills people. Yeah, but that yeah. The <laughs> but as far as like the the prerequisites for what a slasher is, it just doesn't right. feel like one to me necessarily. It's like yeah. a supernatural horror movie. Yeah, the average the average spy thriller boasts. Yeah a huge body count versus what yeah. some of these movies do and so. i've never heard wes craven refer to his movies as slashers either yeah. at least these movies yeah. uh this one in the fangoria the earliest fangoria i saw talking about it wes craven said it is a reality-based virtual reality story oh, that's, that's very that's 90s yeah <laughs> and I, I i always wonder also i know he was merely a producer i think he was just a producer on it but 
I wonder how much of the leftover ideas rolled into Wishmaster later on. <laughs> you want to bring up an obscure movie? Ugh, you brought yeah. up Cursed earlier on. Yeah, I did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, I at least paid a dollar in a theater to see Wishmaster. I know that. I don't know if I did. Yeah, well, good for you. <laughs> Uh, all right, you want to get out of here? Let's do it. So we still have a few more episodes to go in the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise retrospective. Coming up, episode eight is one you might have heard before, but we're going to try to take a look at it from a different perspective. It's Freddy vs. Jason. Then we have the remake, which we're both looking forward to. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm curious. Yeah. I've seen it once. Yeah. And then the wrap-up, of course, and you'll be able to find all of those on cnjradio.com home of the last theater and the cnj radio network podcast and of course check us out on the facebook and twitter at the last theater all right see you guys on the repeat remake of freddy versus jason bye heather thanks for having the guts to play nancy one last time at last freddy's back where he belongs regards Wes.